The Society of Illustrators Museum of Illustration is an international organization with artists and members from continents across the earth. In our work, we honor the belief in that art and culture crosses borders and that curiosity and perspective, rather than fear and divisiveness, are the key to meaningful and successful cross-cultural dialogue and greater understanding between people. Welcome back to the Society of Illustrators New Visions podcast. As you all know by now, hopefully, uh, with New Visions we like to talk about a whole host of topics including diversity, inclusion, and illustration's role in the larger cultural context. New Visions is led by me, Jonathan Bartlett, and includes Jensen Ekwal, Yao Xiao, John Lee, and Chris Kindred. Alright, let's talk comics. Admittedly something um, I'm pretty distant from myself I'd say you know that is I don't make comics that's for sure and uh, and I kind of don't I rarely read them truth be told but that's why we do this podcast right it's not just about what I know or what you know what we think the particular lane is supposed to be but instead we get the experts to come in and talk about industries and issues things we are confident you want to hear about and perspectives that may not often be given a spotlight so today we've got something really good for you. Daryl Io is moderating a deep dive conversation into the industry, the culture, readers, and publishers, distribution models, and kind of everything in between. So we've got a panel of amazing people that include editor from First Second, Calista Brill, comics editor from Publishers Weekly, Calvin Reed, artist and now an editor as well at Lion Forge, Hazel Nuevant, and artist Sarah Varen. You know, also while we're on the topic of comics and the Society of Illustrators. Just to point out, for those who don't who don't realize, uh, Society runs their own comics fest, MOCA, MOCA Fest, and they actually also have a gallery dedicated exclusively to comic art. It's true. So, so next time you're in New York or you're at the Society of Illustrators, make sure you check that out. Alright, so I'm not going to ramble much more because as you can tell, I'm sick. So let's kick it over to Daryl. And, uh, and see what we can what we can learn. My name is Daryl Ayo. I am the moderator here. I'm a cartoonist and comics critic. Okay. Uh, my name is Calvin Reed. I'm a senior news editor at Publishers Weekly. I'm co-editor of PW Comics World, which is PW's online coverage of comics and graphic novel publishing. And I am a co-host of. More to come. Uh, PW's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. I'm Hazel Nulevant. I'm a cartoonist and editor, and New Visions was nice enough to have me back for a second podcast. And the first time I was on, I think I was working on the anthology Comics for Choice, and I was an assistant editor at Lion Forge Comics, and now the anthology is finished, and I'm an associate editor, so I'll hopefully have a whole array of new experiences to bring to bear. Okay, um, I'm, my name is Sarah Varen, and I do um, graphic novels mostly with First Second. Actually, all with First Second. The lovely people at First Second. 
I'm a lovely person at first second. My <laughs> name is Calista Brell. Um, I'm the executive editor. I've been there for almost 10 years, and I acquire and edit graphic novels for readers of all ages and temperaments. And this is Comics Changing Place and Culture, how we can make our stories heard. When they, f when they begin in the form that we understand them, comics were mass culture. They were a product of the newspaper institution, which was the mass media of its day. As such, there was a place for comics in the minds of most people. They were a form of communication that was seen and understood by the average, by the average person. Today, comics tend to be the domain of people who have a special, dedicated interest in the form itself. While there have always been casual readers of comics, the number appears to have diminished from the art's heyday, which was more or less a century ago. So we're asking, what is the place of comics in our culture, and how can we make our stories heard? So, to start with, I just want to uh, open it up to say, um, what do you perceive as comics culture, and then how do you see that interacting with the broader culture of our society. I can, this is Callista, I can ineptly wade in and then you guys can steer me in the right direction and or correct me. Um, yeah, this part is the waters, please, <laughs> Callista. <laughs> um, so this is a complicated question for first second because we are a division of a book publisher and we sort of explicitly court book readers for our graphic novels. That's been a big part of our strategy. Um, we all, also obviously are looking for dedicated comics fans, uh, but our sort of attitude has been um, that the people that we need to convert sort of for the health of the medium are people who know that they love reading books but don't yet know that they love reading comics. Um, it's a little tricky when you start talking about comics culture from my point of view because a lot of people would automatically say comics culture is superheroes. Um, and for us, it, comics culture obviously means something very different. Um, but if you asked me to define sort of what for seconds comics culture is, I'm not sure I actually could. You know, there's this thing where comics is not a genre, it's a format, um, and that's a sort of an easy thing to say, but at the same time, there definitely is a type of person who loves reading comics and a person who identifies as a comics reader, and that person isn't always a superhero fan. So I guess the thing I'm trying to figure out is who is that person and how do I make them buy my books? Okay, I'm going to jump in. This is Calvin. Uh, well, I'm a journalist. Uh, I cover the comics trade. Uh, and, I, and more specifically, I cover comics in the book trade, though we do cover the comic shop market too. Um, uh, but that's a professional side. The comics culture, the atmosphere, the cultural atmosphere of comics. I mean, um, I mean, I guess at its broadest, it's this world of color, black and white, and sequential storytelling, and all the stuff that's related to it. Uh, the fandom, the superhero fandom, but I think that the 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 culture of comics has expanded. Certainly, in my time in comics, we're at a point now where, much like the market, I think the culture of comics has grown much beyond where it was, say, when I was a kid. So you talked about superhero comics. Uh, we're in no longer in a one genre marketplace in this country. The culture is broader too. But I think one of the great things about comics culture, as opposed to defining it exactly by whatever kind of comics we like, is that uh, you know we all come together as a comics fan, even around comics that we don't really particularly like very much. Uh, we seem to have a stake in them. I think that's one of the great things about comics culture. Um, it's getting to be a little more pretentious, so maybe that'll change. But I think comics culture is this the, that whole range of stuff from the most serious um, 
you know, from, you know, mouse to, you know, uh, cosplay and what goes on in conventions, which are very interesting. I think we're going to be talking about that at some point. But what's interesting, if you wanted to find comic culture, you could be like, what goes on inside of those conventions? Because there's a little, literally everything there, and it's related in one way or another. So comics culture is broad um, uh, and lively right now, and, and I think it's like more exciting and uh, more, uh, more lively than it's ever been in this country, uh, except at least in the last 50 years or so. Yeah. Overlong response. <laughs> I think that was a good response. Yeah. Yeah, take as long as you need. Uh, this is Hazel. Um, I think going to the point of of conventions, like what's brought together at a mainstream convention is any kind of like stories that are drawn or involve like illustrated storytelling, which is like a huge umbrella that also involves animation, um, games that have drawn or like illustrative elements. And then the uh, like the, the broader array of genres that kind of are associated with uh, superhero storytelling, because that's is a pretty integral part of comics culture these like larger than life characters with fantastical powers but I feel like despite working for Lion Forge which publishes all kinds of comics I'm kind of looking at this from the outside of somebody who's never um, been interested in superhero comics as a reader or a creator or most kinds of I guess genre fiction so it, comics culture is broad enough that I can totally ensconce myself in like a micro subculture that is mostly about um, people telling everyday stories that are personal to them, whether it's literally autobiographical or just something that they care very deeply about and being able to um, fully like create that themselves because that's doesn't really apply to superhero comics, but for you know any kind of smaller press stuff, the beauty of it is that you can entirely like art direct it and make it yourself. So I feel like what I appreciate is that singularity of vision and that personalness. And then I also just like storytelling with pictures, but that's the the side of comics culture that I have burrowed myself into and there's just so much comics that I can just wrap that around me like a big thick blanket and just go <laughs> to like more indie conventions and um, read the mini comics and graphic novels that really resonate with me. Oh, I don't know. I don't know how much I have to add. I feel like you guys have a much broader perspective because I feel like you're looking as publishers and <laughs> as critics. Um, this is Sarah Byrne. Uh, uh, I think you guys, have, you know, you're looking at it from a different place than I am. I feel like you guys are looking at it from above and I'm looking at it from just my little niche and I really don't know that much what, about what goes on outside my little niche, which I think is similar to Hazel's. It's like the little Comic-Cons where stuff is handmade and people are really making stuff. Um, it's like a labor of love and maybe not they're not making it for profit um, right so kind much. of an extension of zine culture maybe right yeah and it's about like craft and make you know making 
things yourself or DIY, I guess. Um, and then I go to New York Comic Con every once in a while, and I see this whole other world. So then I realize that I'm not. I don't know. I'm like this, like I think I'm all my friends like this thing that I like, and I think like I'm comics culture. And then I go to this New, New York Comic Con, and there's like a million other things going on. So I don't feel like I can really. Like, I don't know. I think it's huge. Uh, Sarah, you DIY all kinds of things uh, beyond comics, right? Like, I know you make prints. Like, yeah, you kind I of think, extend yeah. that into other realms. Right. I think that's what, that's, what I, that's what I like. I like. And I like when comics can come off the page and become, I don't know, like little objects or more encompassing than just pictures on a page. I mean, there is a wonderful thing about comics, right? It's a visual medium that can actually be fully achieved by a single human being. Um, and it's a visual narrative medium that can be done. And I, I'm trying to think now, I sort of never have thought about this in this perspective, but other visual narrative mediums are things like film and television, right, that require the cooperation and funding of an enormous amount of people. And I wonder if that's sort of a unique thing about comics, that it's something that, you know, one very determined person with a pen and paper can accomplish on their own. I, I think that's, I mean, that's definitely what I appreciate about it. And I don't want to give um, short shrift to superhero comics or any kind of comics that is, you know, broken down between like writer, artist, colorist, letterer, editor, because even that is still such a small team of people collaborating as compared to a whole film and has such expanded possibilities that are unbound by by budgets and stuff that you know even even though the stuff that I like tends to be one person doing it all still like I think a small team of people can really get on the same page and execute a, a singular vision without having to go through a lot of these roadblocks and yeah, hey. I mean, my, my whole sense of the culture is that it, 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 it's comics and everything else that goes on around it, you know, so absolutely, I mean, what's, what's great now is that there are a lot of different kinds of comics and a lot of different approaches to making comics, but uh, just in terms of defining culture, I'm just thinking of it as more than the comics themselves, including, you know, variations on it, you know, derivative stuff, and just the behavior of people that love comics, I mean, for better or for worse, we're surrounded by a general population that thinks they know what comics culture is. Now, often that is a kind of an, an old-fashioned notion, but still generally, most people see, like, you know, everything from um, Love and Rockets to, um, you know, Doomsday Clock as it's all comics culture. I want to read you that know. crossover. Yeah, you're right. There you go, you know? So, I mean, now, you know, Maybe you don't really want to read it, but you know what? If someone gives it to you, you probably would. <laughs> I mean, I'll read pretty much anything that's there, a comic book. There you go. Okay, yeah. there you go. I mean, um, yeah. I, I mean, I just, now it's this exciting time. I mean, I grew up at a time where it was all superhero comics. That's what it was. I mean, there were other kind of cartoons. I mean, there were gag panels and newspaper comic strips. But, you know, I grew up, I, I became a comics fan in the 1960s. I was a Marvel and DC, you know, goofy fanboy. And but that was it. I mean, if you wanted to do comics, either you did superhero comics, you did gag panels. If you were lucky, you tried to do a newspaper strip, and that. But I mean, that's all changed now. So mm -hmm. comics culture has changed too. 
what we're seeing now, I think, is a, is, is a rebirth of interest in comics in a broad way across the entire medium. And when I say that, I mean from, from you know, obscure, unreadable, experimental comics to, you know, to Reina, to Superman. I mean, there is a, so much of a wider range, so there are more entry points for people to read comics. So I think the market, the audience for comics in the North America is on the rebound. I think if you look at individual parts of it, they've shrunk or, and are growing. So, I mean, it's not one thing, but overall, I think it's a great time for comics and for comics readers. All right, so I think that kind of is a nice way to segue into the second part of that, where um, what do you think the interplay or interaction or relationship between the culture of comics and the culture of the culture? <laughs> <laughs> like, as a subculture, how does it relate, do you think, to the general culture is like, that can be on the side of a maker or that can be, um, or if you want to talk about like the relationship between like reading in general and, um, and um, reading comics and how that relates or any other type of interplay that you might be thinking of. Well, this is just a hypothesis, but um, I think because of what we were talking about earlier, because of the lower budgets to make a comic and the not having, not needing buy-in from nearly as many people as like film or TV, I feel like it uh, has become a, a, a testing ground or like an alchemist's lab for... Uh, things breaking out into other more expensive mediums and, you know, like film or TV or Broadway plays. Um, and, and I don't want the interaction or the notoriety or success of comics to be reduced to that, but I think that is a major function that they play, and that's maybe why there's, like all of these different fandoms that like expand out into other kinds of mediums that we see at big cons. I also think um, there has been this, you know, sort of obvious trend in the last 10 or 15 years towards things that are like quote unquote nerdy becoming very mainstream and like we're all nerds now, right? This is like the, the new reality that we face where everybody's a self-proclaimed nerd. Um, and, you know, like it or not, comics is a, uh, a culture and a medium that's sort of pretty strongly affiliated with like geek and nerd interests. And so I think that um, that has been very nice for comics, at least from my point of view as the publisher um, of comics in a sort of a trade book arena. Um, because it means that a, a certain amount of the stigma has been worn away. Um, you know, it used to be like when First Second started, we had to do a lot of work convincing people that comics were like legit literary works, that they weren't just garbage, right? So that's a conversation now that has to happen much, much, much less frequently. Um, and that's been really satisfying to watch. Um, so I've liked that. 
So are you saying you liked that it did start out associated with geek and nerd culture or you like the movement away from it? Oh, no, no. What I mean is that um, it's still associated with geek and nerd culture, but I think as geek and nerd culture has sort of become more mainstream and more accepted uh, sort of more broadly in society, so then have comics. There's and less of a need to justify it. Yeah, there's less of a sort of a stigma, and that's really nice. That's been, um, it makes it easier for us to get our books out there. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, um, uh, I was going to jump in here somewhere. Uh, um, I mean, it depends on what part of the comics culture that we mentioned before you're talking about. I think, I think there, there are vast areas of comics that are wholly mainstream, that everyone understands that, you know, the comics uh, are in the fabric of this country's culture. They, you know, uh, now, I think we're in a period now where different forms of American comics are new to the American public. Uh, they are more receptive to them than they've ever been before. Obviously, indie comics, we're seeing a whole kind of, uh, we're seeing this incredible movement out of the LGBTQ community to, uh, that where comics are in the mainstream. Uh, I mean, part of what you're going to hear me go back, because I have like one issue, uh, and, and it's the, uh, uh, that has transformed comics, and that's the book trade. I think that's the, I think the most important thing, there's lots of important things that have happened in comics to make them interact in the culture in broader ways than they ever have before. Uh, uh, there's a bunch of them. I, I, the book trade, in my view, humble view, because I'm a book trade guy, uh, that has been uh, probably the most revolutionary because that's where the readers are. Uh, however, other things, uh, the internet, obviously, libraries, teachers, these, all of these forces have conspired to break down the artificial uh, scarcity in the American market of more than one genre. That, that is over with. And it's the best thing that ever happened to comics ever. And this is by a guy who loves superhero comics. Well, used to love superhero comics. But superhero comics are great. They're one genre among many. And we have a better comics market because of it. Now, now. What we're happening is that other kinds of comics are insinuating themselves into the American psyche. That's cool. Uh, obviously, all of these questions around diversity are part of it. But I mean, this is a broad landscape. There's lots of things we can talk about now about how comics are connecting with a readership in ways that they never have before, primarily because there are more genres. There's more things out there for people who want to read comics who didn't know that they wanted to read them before. So. Yeah, that's my, is that there are all kinds of stuff is going on between comics and the culture on the mainstream level, you know, everybody knows, you know, Mickey Mouse comics or whatever you want to call it, but we're seeing, we're seeing at every level this great uh, medium, uh, it, you know, creeping uh, into other areas. Oh, this is Callista. Put me down for everything that Calvin just said, and I don't need to say anything else for the rest of my life. <laughs> And more diverse creators, mm -hmm. yeah. all of the above. Oh, yeah, that actually, um, uh, I guess on that topic, my, I gave Alan's war to um, my mom's boyfriend, who's like 85. <laughs> oh, awesome. And he loved it. Great book. Loved, yeah, it's a great book. And I was like amazed that he read a comic book, you know. Yes. So my I work here is cool. done. Yeah, your work is we done. Converted we converted an 85-year-old man. Yes. Wonderful. Has the, the nature of feedback changed? Like, for, like Sarah, like, are you get, like, are you being reached out to by people who read your book and they're like, oh, the, the, you know, your story really meant something to me more than it ever did, or is it still, is there still a distance between readers and the makers, or is maybe, not, or when you're at small conventions, does this happen? You know what I mean? Does it feel like, wow, 
I don't know. I mean, I had. I don't think. Um, maybe I get better some school kids, I guess, because they're reading them in school a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I mean, I think that's interesting, right? If if we went back twenty years and said a cartoonist is going to be invited to schools to read her comic books to students as like a visiting author, people would be like, that's really weird. (laughs) Like there has been this incredible gain in terms of just cultural legitimacy of the format um, that I think is hard to underestimate is it's huge. It's huge. It really is, you know? Um, And, you know, I don't know when it dates from, I mean, some people date it from the uh, Times cover article. What was that, about 2004? Yeah, I think Some so. people date it from that. I right. don't, you know. Which one? Um, this was the one. It, it, what is it? Who? Um, With the Jordan was it Chester? Br- yeah. Yeah. Was it Chester Brown who did a comic on the cover talking? So. And then, but then there was that that photo of uh, Art and his boys, and because <laughs> it was yeah. all boys, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Win and, some, lose some. Yeah, you know. Well, you know, what are you gonna do? Yes. Um, but. Uh, I'm saying some people date it from that. That's an easy kind of tent pole. But, you know, there's all kinds of, I mean, uh, I think, you know, steps in this process from going from a one genre marketplace to more. Uh, You could even date it from the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, and the uh, proliferation of manga. Mm -hmm. The power of manga over a generation, including uh, its uh, impact on, I think, women, young women. And uh, as a bookstore, once again, I'm going to return to the book trade. As a book trade phenomenon, manga was sold primarily in bookstores. Um, This... Uh, completely energized, in my view, American comics publishing. Uh, it showed trade book publishers that comics could sell in numbers that you had to pay attention to, uh, and they did. And it also just changed uh, it changed the notion of what fans expected and what young artists expected. Because here is a here is a, a category of comics, Japanese comics, that is designed across the board to appeal to everybody. Yep. Unlike um, another national comics tradition that we could talk about, American <laughs> superhero comics, which just sort of lost track with humanity after a point. Well, if we talk about the 90s, I think it would be a good idea to uh, mention Jeff Smith. Sure. Yeah. A- absolutely. That's a, well, another po- a, a, a important entry point, a dynamic comic for kids. Yep. And a self-published dynamic comic yes, for kids, absolutely. you know? I mean, I think the other thing is the self-publishing movement got, I mean, it really, I guess, sort of got underway in the 70s, but I feel like it's been building steadily ever since, and it's been consistently leading the way in terms of topics that it's tackling, in terms of representation, in terms of pushing the boundaries artistically. Um, you know, I think a lot of publishers, I can certainly speak for, for a second, we keep a really careful eye on the stuff that we're seeing coming out of self-publishing. And now... Self-publishing is more powerful than it ever was because you've got, I mean, this affects comics less, but Kindle has been an incredible game changer for prose writers. But Kickstarter, you know, I mean, I look at what Spike Trotman is doing on Kickstarter. She created an entirely new publishing model single-handedly, and it is phenomenally successful. And people like Spike, who have terrific taste and who have really good contacts, are getting out there. I mean, Hazel, you ran one of the better Kickstarter campaigns of the last few years. You know this. Thank you. Well, damn straight, totally following (laughs) in uh, in Spike's steps. And and when we're talking about self-published comics, there's also the... Um, 
unsung gap of like web comics, which yes, also yes. created a whole new generation of cartoonists. I definitely would not be here right now if not for manga. And then I think web comics played like a secondary degree, but I wouldn't be making comics if I didn't see American auto bio comics because before that I was like, it's not for me. Like people aren't telling everyday stories and that's what I care about. Um, but yeah, what were we saying? Web comics. Mm. Also, I mean, that's a form yeah, of self-publishing yeah. that I didn't want to get um, passed over, which I think mm. really exemplifies what you were saying about like leading the way in terms of diversity of content and topics and creators and um, and and reaching out to people who don't or didn't think of themselves as comics readers because for whatever reason it fits into another mental category um i think that's really true i know a lot of web comics readers who would not describe themselves as comics readers sure yeah, yeah. it's kind of like the newspaper comics of the internet age except for you have a browser folder and you're like i'm gonna check sure. this and this and this although the new newspaper comics of the internet age is like comics on buzzfeed or um the new yorker website or something like that where it's like Oh, the nib, Folded, I guess. Or, <laughs> well, I mean, yes, the nib, but I was thinking of, I mean, I guess the nib would be its own, like, separate political cartoon yeah. newspaper, yeah, yeah. but I'm thinking of things where it's, like, absolutely folded in with other, like, with with other types of content. I'm right. doing quote marks here. So people don't even think get, of it. I as gave up like, on the quote marks like five years ago. I was like, "Fuck <laughs> it, it's all content now." You mean the comics <laughs> with other kinds of prose content, or or other right, kind other of, kinds yeah. of prose content, sure. or like A you know, gift sets, or or listicles, or or quizzes, mm -hmm. or whatever. You know, people like are like following like BuzzFeed's Instagram, and they're getting you know introduced to new True. cartoonists, and they're mm -hmm. not thinking of it in a way as like this like this is separate comics time like this is this separate subculture and hobby and whatever so i think maybe or like stuff on like twitter and tumblr i think maybe that is the new um like newspaper strip of the new generation where people are having comics put in front of them and gaining some of that visual literacy without having to think about it or without having to really even make a choice of like now i'm going to read this and i think it maybe is functioning in the same way as a gateway of just something that you are just passively introduced to that's a really good point yeah i think this way how you distribute comics how you syndicate them how you get them in front of someone you're absolutely right that's that it, it obviously it changes how people respond to comics, but it just gets them in front of more people in more different kinds of forms once again. So yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And maybe that's translating to uh, book sales for these people or longer kinds of stories for them if that's what they want to do. But you know, even if not, if it's like managing to create careers for people, just like doing you know short strips that are incredibly viral and then selling like you know, cups and t-shirts and whatever to make money off of that, like, that's great too, you know, that's the new art form of the strip. So it, it could, I think it would be um, probably priming people even more to 
read comics in a longer form or maybe pick up like a print collection of humor comics or something. But even if not, if it's still like, you know, it's it's a worthy thing in and of itself. And it's yeah, very I worthy agree. of like creating careers for cartoonists and illustrators. And a lot of that stuff is really good. Like it's easy to sort of want to dismiss it because it's being packaged to you along with a list of like, you know, top, 10 80s movies about talking cats or whatever mm -hmm. but you know if it's funny and if it looks if it's pretty it's still good it doesn't matter the context daryl you know you were talking about um sort of the place of comics culture within like kind of mainstream american culture and one of the things i've been thinking about a lot lately is that comics culture feels like it's sort of this <laughs> extra violent microcosm um expressing cultural clashes that we're seeing sort of writ large in American society right now. Because I think, you know, for me, my experience of comics is this sort of specific corner of comics that tends towards very progressive politics, like identity politics in particular, um, and a kind of a desire for uh, like unprecedented levels of inclusion and diversity and representation um, on all levels. And I think, well, I know lately there's also been a sort of a massive backlash uh, from people whose sort of identity as comics fans is much more rooted in sort of like deeply socially conservative uh, philosophies, we'll say. Um, and that, you know, that's like the last month in particular, there's been a lot of uh, Sturm und Drang online with these guys who are sort of causing trouble about this stuff. And it's interesting because I'm looking at this and to me it feels very much like a kind of a very local and sort of extra virulent version of um, a political struggle that's happening right now just in general. And I'm trying to think like if something, something like this is happening in book publishing, if something like this is happening in television and movies, and I kind of feel like it's not. Like I wonder if this is a weird moment that we're having specifically in comics. You mean the pushback against um, inclusion? Well, yeah, that, that we have we have an industry here and a medium that's like simultaneously doing some of the sort of most radically progressive and inclusionary work, but then also is being is a home for and and is sort of um, uh, that that there's a contingent that can claim claim ownership as well that has like pretty much the opposite. Um, agenda right like I'm trying to think if, if there's another industry or another medium that you could sort of say that about I don't know well, I would definitely point to the video games yes uh, yeah no exactly mm -hmm. and <clears throat> and science fiction Not, as well I guess right I feel like they've oh, been through yes, this as well yes because um, there was something with the, what is it the Hugo Awards yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah, puppies and that person has yeah. migrated over to comics to start his oh god is it there. him personally I didn't yes, know that it yeah. is super okay well, but um <laughs> I mean that's his opinion he's not yeah. going to do but whatever he's going to do but uh I mean and I think you are seeing it in book publishing I think you're seeing it in um you know at least online at least the you know the Sturm and Drung online the um you know the uh the, the, the flame wars if you can still call them that the mm -hmm. the um uh, you you encounter it online. You certainly encounter it on Twitter. Um, you know, my own opinion, of course, is that the demand for this is is far greater and far more various and more relentless than the voices against it. But they're there. They you know they're easily amplified in an age of social media. I think um, you know in the YA category, I think you're seeing some of that online. Uh, the pushback for against. Uh, 
well, in comics, what is this you know, social justice warrior is the uh, the preferred term the, yeah, the, the, <laughs> of derision? Although I mean, I, I, feel like I have no problem being a social justice warrior, uh, but um, but yeah, I mean, there's, I think that there is uh, you know some sort of revision, some sort of counter. Um, but you know, hey, it's, you know, it's a nominally a free country, so <laughs> I guess they get to complain. But it's what I when I look around and see what is being done and how people are organizing around this issue, our people are excited about new artists and uh, comics now. Uh, just as we're talking about self-publishing, it's really created uh, more diversity. It's more ways to get more books in front of people than let the market really genuinely decide what they want it wants to read and what it doesn't this is a great time now it really is that's all i've got to say <laughs> i'm like yes a plus i, I like stop this at moment. some point or i'll never stop talking <laughs> <laughs> um so we're talking about the book market and then hazel's talking about people who you know just passively read an nmls buzzfeed comic online so how i'd like to hear people's theories of like how to get those people into the comic conventions in the in the sense of like in like caring about comics as a medium and thus like interjecting the viewership and the money like into the space because we you know we see the same thing circulating around every con and like how do we expand how do we get it to be more like draw more people in I think fandom is a very, very, very powerful tool. Um, and I think fandom can be around a story, and sometimes it can be around, like, a singular interesting person. You know, like, I'm thinking about the oatmeal. You know, that guy, he doesn't tell, like, conventional stories. He's sort of, like, putting, you know, weird kind of oddball observations into the world. Um, but people adore him because he has such a specific and... Uh, funny point of view and I think fandom is what drives people into comic book conventions I mean you don't go to a comic book convention like just to see what it's all about you have to like the the hoops that you have to jump through to get into New York Comic Con at this point are significant it's it's if you're there it's because you were very determined to get there well I, I do think that 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 we need to, to to talk about the different ways, the different levels, the different kinds of uh, uh, presentational platforms that are available now. I mean, New York Comic Con and San Diego, that's one thing. But what we see is a proliferation of other kinds of festivals that are bringing other kinds of fans. I mean, I, I, mean, um, I, mean, I, I don't really think, I mean, I, I'm not sure it's a question of us trying to get more people to go to comic stores. I mean, I, I the, People are clamoring to get into these things now. I think that there is a sense out there that there's something uh, different going on that they want that people want to be involved with. It's not just you know what's the latest issue of Batman anymore. Nothing wrong with that. I like uh -huh. Batman, but what's exciting and it and it's taking place even at the at the giant, giant mega cons. I mean, even there, even at these places where you just you you just can't believe, you know, a, a comic book of rare sensibility would be there, but they are. <laughs> they're there at San Diego. People hate San Diego now, but really, amazingly enough, there's really great comics that are not superhero comics. I will totally defend San, San Diego. Diego as a good but comic now, show. You do have to kind of really want to go, uh, which is kind of unfortunate because uh, I do think that there's a huge component of people who just want to go. Mm -hmm. They've heard about it. They know that Comics are fun, <laughs> if nothing else. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yes, they're serious and deep. 
you know, and, and like the river. But they're also fun. Everyone wants to be involved. This is a happy brand, you know, writ large. So, I mean, it's to me what's, what's what need is that we just get as more artists involved. To get the artists, let the artists make comics, and let the journalists write about them. Get the you know get people into New York Comic Con, but get them in the SBX and Mocha, where there's a different kind of show. I wanna and I'm gonna shut up in a second. There's a thing that I like to say about PW that we're one of the few uh, outlets to cover San Diego as a publishing event, not as a media event. Yep. And we cover New York Comic Con the same way. We are covering publishing. We're covering books and how they're transforming artists and this medium. I don't have an answer to Jensen's question, but my broad concern is how do we create like an audience or a situation that expands how like the amount of like people who can be working artists and how do we get them money? And I don't know if having bigger convention attendances is the answer, although certainly um, people who are running like small conventions like throughout the year that like can do a lot for like a certain kind of artist's bread and butter. But um, yeah, I don't know if people getting people to go to conventions is the most important part of that. I mean, I think it's conventions and, and it's sort of everything else too, right? And I'm, I'm thinking about two cultures where <laughs> comics are sort of um, uncontroversially considered for everybody and about everything, and one of them is Japan and the other is France. And both of those, um, both of those places have had a longer history than we have of comics as a sort of a um, for everybody kind of deal but that's articulate uh and and you know one of the things i talk with my boss about this all the time he grew up in france mark siegel the editorial director for a second um and he points to what the french comics culture was like in you know the 60s and 70s and sort of says where the american culture is now is analogous right so i think some of it is just the power of getting this stuff out there and having a couple of generations of people growing up reading it and considering it normal and considering it just like another medium that they enjoy along with books and television and that there's a sort of normalizing effect that takes place but it takes a while right and you know the thing is in france a comic book creator can reliably make a living wage in a way that they only the sort of elite can in the US, right? And part of that economics is just more people buy comics. Yep, you know? I've heard um, like quite a few American creators writing their books in English and having them debut in France for that reason. Um, that's kind of a comforting picture. So as long as, you know, America exists for another 50 years, maybe we'll get there. <laughs> oh no, the singularity is coming before then, so. Ah, uh, fuck, well. Well, it, it's, it's nice tr- knowing you. It's true about France. There, there, there's really a mammoth uh, comic book loving country uh, culture. Uh, not, I mean, they love all kinds of comics across the board. Um, it's interesting. I, I'm hearing different things from some um, European artists about 
uh, making a living. Oh, uh -huh. um, there it bec in some ways because there is such a proliferation of books and artists. Um, uh, it's it's tough, but the numbers that the French publishers get and expect is jaw dropping in comparison with anything in American publishing. Yeah. I mean, Americans don't really buy that many books. Yep. And so it's sort of astonishing. I mean, I mean, you know, comics can sell 100,000 copies in France, and most people are not excited about that. They expect it to sell millions, you know, hundreds I'm, of thousands I'm of very copies. confused by France. Uh, like, you know, I would like so, to understand how this works. Uh, so it, it seems as though now, uh, and, I, and I don't claim that this is accurate, but this is kind of what I, what I hear. I've been to Angoulême, which is an amazing experience. But you, you see that there, uh, there seems to be a, I hate the term glut and that there's too much publishing because I don't know who determines how much publishing there should be. A wealth, maybe? Yeah, there is a wealth. <laughs> An embarrassment lot, of riches. But it seems as though, you know, there's more like a few artists making a, a lot of money and selling insane numbers and fewer uh, artists getting deals. But but I don't understand it either because still there's an enormous number of books published there all the time. Yeah, that industry is confusing to me. So, I will say like there's a lot of garbage being published in yeah. France too. A lot of it is just objectively terrible. Yeah. Is and it still selling a lot? I don't know. I wonder that. I mean, it was interesting. When I when I went to Angoulême for the first time, Angoulême mm. is this huge um, comics festival in France that's sort of it's like the European comics yeah. festival. Um, I was very excited because all of the French comics that I had been exposed to were really good. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking, oh my God, this is this whole town overtaken by this industry that only publishes this kind of thing. And then I got there and it's like, well, of course, 90% of everything is crap. And that's true kind of no matter where you are, right? And it's true for that industry as well. And I sort of found that comforting, I have to say. And I will say this about France. It's a completely book. It's comics industry is a book industry. Yes. I mean, there's, yeah, there's a little no, bit of, of comics. You don't have like your book, your book fan versus your comics fan. People yeah, don't identify books. as comics people in France. It's just another way of reading a story. Yeah. Comics, medium, and books is where it's heading, whether it's self-published, whether it's web comics that can be converted into books, whether it's superhero comics that are collected and are then recirculated books where even the superhero fan is going to a bookstore to buy, to get their fix because... It's a more various, more durable, more broadly distributed product. I mean, in some ways, maybe that it's time for to ask what's going to happen to these legacy institutions that we know so well, the, the pamphlet comic, the direct market comic shop store. What is to become of these if you take the position that um, the book side is going to get much bigger? What what about these legacies? Do they matter? Should they just go away? So there is a practice. Oh, I'm sorry, Daryl, you were going to say something. Oh, I was, I, I was just going to ask, do you think they are going away? Uh, I think they're in trouble. I don't know whether they're going away. They're too much a part of the, the American comic book psyche. I mean, as an economic model, the serial pamphlet is incredibly powerful, yeah. you know, and this is something I think about a lot because the books that I publish are generally 200 to 300 pages long, and I'm paying people a lump sum, and if you, com if you compare the lump sum that I'm paying broken down by page to what somebody who is doing work for hire for a, an IP house yeah. like Marvel or DC is making, um, it's not it's not a great comparison. It's It's hard to sort of justify it, and I think... 
The thing is, when you have people who need to create comics that are based on intellectual property that is owned by that company, right? So it's a work for hire yes. arrangement where you're asking the artist and the author to give up their copyright. You have to be able to, to compensate them appropriately. And that's an expensive measure. And one way of, as you were saying, of amortizing that expense is doing the serial model. And the serial model is really good for that. Um, I mean, my understanding of the economics of serial publishing is pretty primitive, but you know, I mean, I, I sort of envy them because I'm like, well, that's a way of paying people real money, yeah. you know? Yeah, but the model has a lot of problems. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. <laughs> so, Can you say anything about how that would, how that same model interacts with uh, some of the other publishers, such as like, not necessarily Image, but maybe Dark Horse or one of the other ones that isn't necessarily, Dark Horse does licensed stuff as well, but they don't necessarily do licensed stuff. Uh, do you know anything about that, how that relates to all this? Or I don't. I mean, my, my guess would be that probably page rates are similar at those houses, whether or not you're doing IP work or creator-owned. But um, I, have a, I have a suspicion that the IP stuff is um, floating some of the creator-owned stuff. That would be my guess. Right. Um, with creator-owned, you know, there's a risk, and every now and again something really pays off, and then everybody wins. But I'm, I'm not the person to be asking about this. My understanding of this economics is very bad. Hazel, you might actually know more about this than I do. Take it away, Hazel. Well, most of the comics that I work on at Lion Forge um, are creator-owned and coming out in graphic novel format, but I do... Um, work on a couple of things that come out as single issues. Um, and I mean, def my sense is like, at least with us, people would are getting paid about the same for a creator owned graphic novel, whether it's um, released as just one graphic novel or whether it's released as single issues leading up to the graphic novel like it's it's not going to be that different the choice about single issues is more like keeping the momentum of the story going or just like are these gonna make enough money do we think to be worth printing then they're worth being out there to like lead the way for this larger work or um I mean, that's or keep another interest thing. up between volumes kind of thing. Yeah. That, I mean, that's another really important difference is sort of the creative momentum of a project when you're publishing it serial, right? Like, there's a sort of a psychological aspect for the creator. Um, if you sit down to do a 250-page graphic novel all in one fell swoop, that's you in a room by yourself for a year and a half, right? And that can be very isolating and very stressful and very lonely. Um, and it also means that you are removed from reader feedback for that amount of time. And so there's something probably very satisfying, I'm imagining, I've never worked in serial publishing, um, for somebody who's publishing on a monthly basis because they get that sort of immediate satisfaction of hearing back from their fans right away. For sure. Or immediate with like a delay of at least I don't know, three months or so, but but still more immediate than like if you're Craig Thompson and you're doing a whole book that takes you've years gone out to the woods with your axe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Sarah, you must, you must uh, have this experience, right? Do you get lonely? Um, or Hazel. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, don't know. I don't get lonely, but it seems like, um, I don't know, like to, to see your book in print, I'm always like, well, this is amazing, and it happens like once every five years, you know? <laughs> so it would be cool to get it, you know, and it does seem kind of like 
like now that you're mentioning it, I'm like, oh, it sounds like fun. I want to do. Oh no. <laughs> for a second, yeah. Fun. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know. But here's the thing with the serial comics. Yeah. There's a there's a problem. There's a bottleneck. There's a there's a there's a there's a there's an entity. There's Diamond Comics distributors. That said the word. That's uh, and, and, and this is not here. to knock Diamond, but they, they, they have a business model, and it's a business model that supports the direct market. Yep. And that's how comics get into the direct market. So it's not like you can come up with this really creative, interesting uh, uh, single issue comic and then just sell it. It's you know it's got to get the diamond minimum. It's got to get and they, you know and obviously they they can be flexible about that if they want to be. But I mean, and and the, and the whole model. I mean, the the, the 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 problem with the direct market is that there's a variety of problems around how it delivers content to its market, and that uh, you know uh, they're 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 a wholesale thing, non-returnable. That creates an issue. Uh, direct market stores buy wholesale, non-returnable. It tends to make you a very conservative in what you order. You buy what you know you will sell. Um, the, now, the, the, there are newer uh, direct market retailers who see themselves as a sort of specialty bookstores that they use a combination of a book trade distribution and, uh, and diamond, so, which can be very smart. Uh, it's, you know, I, I think ultimately we're going to see a new generation of direct market retailers that are more sophisticated and they handle how they stock using diamond as well as book trade people to get things on consignment. I mean, the act of consignment and the how book the book trade sells books, even though many book trade people complain about this all the time, about returns, but in my view, this is the key to this ecosystem of diverse books. The fact that you the stores can don't bear all the risk right, yeah. and can return books that don't see. What we have in the direct market is a market that was designed to sell superhero comics. That's all they want to sell. Now they've evolved a little bit, of course, but it's still an issue. And how your business model had the the, the prevailing business model in this country has had a lot to do with narrowing the choices that consumers have. So I'm just going to throw this one out there to our doubtless millions of listeners. Um, I was talking to my friend Wyeth Yates recently, who is the artist on the Cast Offs, which is a series that we publish and full credit to him he was going where is the shonen jump of american comics like why is that not a thing to have like a huge monthly magazine that has like a really big page count and a cheap print cost um and why why is that not a thing <laughs> but get a free comic you know what i would suggest might be i mean anthologies are interesting but what i suggest might be more important than anthologies, and it's something that actually Hazel is involved with. Lion Forge is one of the most interesting developments going on in comics and book publishing, period. Right now, what we're seeing is something that, that doesn't happen very often. I think the last time it happened was maybe Perseus, where a you know, someone has the resources to really try to put together a major national publishing entity. A, and what's interesting about Lion Forge is it's a comics publisher that is really being developed along the lines of a trade book house. They're doing some direct market stuff, the Catalyst Prime line, obviously that's going to go into... But the kids line there, with Andrea Colvin running that, she's from books. She knows yep. from books. And 
That's how that company is being structured. And as each, they're pulling in different parts of the publishing world. You know, they acquired Magnetic Press. Um, there are apparently other things going on there that yep. I'm, I no, cannot have liberty facts. to mention. But, but, um, I mean, they're definitely yes. trying yeah, I'm to... I'm telling you, you work there, so I should <laughs> shut up. I, they're definitely trying to like hit all angles with like having imprints for different age brackets there's like lion forge which is adult slash everybody roar for teens cub house for kids None of that all ages which, nonsense right which is total I mean, comics in industry stuff yeah that's that's what i not, understand is yeah. that breaking it down further into age yeah, brackets yeah, yeah. and distinguishing it more is better for the trade market they're um I don't know if you were going to bring this up, but they have launched their own whole superhero universe, the sure, Catalyst yeah. Prime universe, yes. which yeah. Joe Illage is uh, the overlord of, um, and <laughs> kids' books, yeah, graphic novels, <laughs> but also, you know, seeing what works as a serialized thing and what makes sense just exclusively in graphic novel format, but... Um, I, I don't worry about the book side. I worry about the superhero side. I, I mean, I don't see where that. I mean, I I, I like the, a lot of the, the books that I'm reading that they're, but I mean, it's such a weird market where the most of the market is only interested in two publishers. I mean, so mm -hmm. and you really have got to penetrate of a, a weird mentality. But we'll see. I mean, it's exciting. Well, that's yeah. a very interesting um, point because um, there's with the uh, comic book fans, with superhero comic book fans, there's a. Uh, you mentioned people who are mostly interested in two publishers. Um, when other publishers are doing the same product, like the same genre, the same creative people doing those things for other companies, whether it's over at Catalyst Prime or Valiant or Dark Horse, it's, you know, and people have noted that the numbers are just not, not comparable, even though we're dealing with the same, like, um, like uh, points of view, the same artists and writers. So it, that, that, that seems like a, a very big, like, um, a, a very particular and local hurdle, like, yeah, <laughs> because when when we're dealing with people who are interested in comics, from whether we call it alternative and then the graphic novel field, web comics, people are very happy to check out stuff that looks like other stuff they're into. And then when it comes to the superhero corner, there seems to be that normal sort of like people following their interests, but it's kind of like they have their own built-in resistance to going even to comparable products. <laughs> um, it, it, it's, uh, it's something that no one seems to be able to crack except to acknowledge that, that for most people, comics, it's like images, stories. But in the superhero world, it's like images, stories, and the thing that and you know. And that character. Yeah, those characters, yep. yes. And that's, that's a very strange... Um, Thing. And I and I think that might that might have something to do with the previous uh, inquiry about um about why we can't have anthologies, for example. Uh, I was wondering because the, uh, yeah, I don't people, think we can't have. I'm sorry. Go on. Well, people just seem very resistant to buying not buying everything that they exactly signed up for. Like I remember, I remember there being some discussions about 
um, Marvel have had, used to have um, short backups in some of their comics, and people were furious that somebody put an extra comic in their comic. Oh, <laughs> yikes. So, um, <laughs> well, you know, comics fans are kind of picky, picky. But outside of that, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, like, I'm, I'm sure that, you no, know, a lot of people have done the, uh, some variant on the Japanese model of anthologies, but I mean, maybe maybe we just can't exactly replicate that with the with the cultural history that we have. Just sort of like the particular historical um, events that brought Japan to that in the what is it fifties? I guess so, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Post-war. you know where anthologies are thriving on crowdfunded. Yep. Platforms. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like no. Flourishing. And yeah. that's like kind of creating a whole new a whole new genre the anthologies that are crowdfunded i feel like they tend to have shorter stories and like almost always one-offs um and are more organized around topics which uh is cool because i mean that's a whole nother way to try to get people into comics like for chainmail bikini i tried to use different gaming subcultures as like a Trojan horse to like get them to read indie artists and women mm. and non-binary artists who I thought were really cool, and um, and it worked. Yeah, it a- it absolutely. did work. It yeah. did work. I thought it was gonna work equally as well with comics for choice because I was like, what could be more important than abortion rights? But I I underestimated just how much gamers love their games and how much of the success of Chainmail Bikini was due to that and not due to like the selection of artists and editorial perspective and the idea of like women artists telling personal stories and there is a pretty large piece of the pie that was made up by like I mean know, that's a, that's a targeting useful, that interest group right exactly and that that's sort of a useful lesson to have learned you know it's a sort of thing that you can you can successfully deploy for your next one. Right. Or, I mean, it's, it's I guess, trial and error yeah. about what um, is going to really resonate with people. But I think that's, at least for, I don't know, I mean, that's probably important with all kinds of comics to some degree is to have, like, some strong hook of... Some kind of point who, of entry. Yeah, of who and why is going to be interested in this other than, like you like comics as a format, you like how this looks, which is, you know, that's already a market, but... Um, yeah, those are yeah. the people you find at festivals generally. I mean, I was thinking about your your dream to um, reignite Shonen Jump, right? And I feel like one of the things that's happened is with the move to digital for so many serialized stories, um, the print book has become less sort of like disposable mode of delivery of story and more like art object to be treasured mm. right and i wonder if that would be sort of um so it might fall into the same like issue that that floppies have generally even though it has a I wonder. a wider spine yeah um, and, and maybe totally there possible. would be like a digital format for it you know hive works hive works is the new i mean hive works. Yeah, well, exactly yeah, it exists already of continuing yeah, in stories that's the new anthology. Those things. I mean, even I mean, I don't really, I don't read a lot on uh, of web comics, but I go to them when I can. And I mean, you go to and there's just 
scores of comics. Yeah, jumping from one to the other. Of all kinds, of all styles. So, I, I mean, mean, I think, you know, microfunding platforms like Patreon are also something, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. that you can't ignore. And, you know, a lot of those have a model where you're getting sort of like the inside dish on material that's generally available. But I also wonder at what point Patreon is going to shift or people who use that are going to shift to a model where you are subscribing and then you get the, the content. And, and nobody else who isn't subscribing does. I mean, I, it, I feel like that one-on-one -on -one relationship with a creator is something that people really treasure and that people are willing to pay for. Uh, it just seems now there are just way more ways. I mean, maybe there's a million ways where you can make a little money as opposed to, I mean, only one or two ways to make any money at all. Um, and once again, I do think that the book trade offers, not that the book trade is so perfect, but it's so much better than the direct market work for hire legacy. Um, even though, if you can get into that, you can probably make a make a living if you want to draw those kind of comics. Right. You have to have a very specific skill set, and you also have to be willing to do a very specific kind of work. Yeah. yeah. And really, and have no no financial not, stake in your work. Yeah. Well, which is asking a lot of people. That might be a little difficult because what, sometimes I think a lot about um, uh, how new distribution methods work in music, but the thing is that, not to take anything away from musicians, but I think that the kind of all-encompassing um, all singular focus required to do comics pretty much takes up all of a person's available time anyway and makes it very difficult for them to do things that would um, diversify their income streams. And so, I mean, you know, it's a little hard to to bank against short things, which is also part of how um, why so many people stick with um, doing work for hire stuff instead of um, you know branching out on their own. Because when it comes down to making a living or doing this interesting thing, sometimes you don't get to make that choice. I don't know. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Financial risk. Yeah, yeah. Earlier, I was doing kind of a let it die face when Calvin was talking about the direct market, but then I was like, that doesn't really, that doesn't match with my politics of wanting as many, you know, artists, people as possible to be able to be working artists. So, um, well, the direct I don't know. market is problematic. I mean, I don't really want to see it go away or anything. I know retailers. Uh, I know a lot of new retailers that really, see themselves as being different than in the past and that their stores are different. Um, uh, I, I'm, I, you know, I, I think reality <laughs> is going to intrude for many of them because I just think that, uh, I don't know, it's a weird, <laughs> direct like market is weird. new business owners, <laughs> yeah. And I just think new blood is coming in uh, in many ways. I mean, but it's still, it's still a, a small number of really good direct market stores. Since the like name, the title of this episode is about stories, uh, we should probably talk a little bit about that, right? Right? Right. Sure. Right? Yeah. Right? I have a question, actually. Can I just jump in with the young audiences thing? Because yeah, I, I was like um, selfishly it. hoping that part of that conversation would end up being um, learning from Sarah, who explicitly makes comics, or rather, who makes comics that for a second then explicitly publishes for kids. But one thing that I've always wondered about your work is are you thinking about kids as your audience when you make these comics or are you just making the no, comics I'm that you want to read? I'm trying to have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'm, I'm the audience. You're the audience. Yeah. 
So I guess in your case, it's like we've found this sort of happy combination of you make the kind of books that we think kids want to read, but you don't need to worry about it. Yeah, which yeah. is amazing for me because I sometimes, I mean, I have gotten jobs where they're like, like I had to do a comic strip in Nickelodeon magazine for 10-year-old boys, and I didn't, it was so hard. Uh, it's interesting. I'm thinking about reactions that we've gotten to your work, and there's this anecdote that Mark likes to tell about Robot Dreams, um, which is a book that we published from Sarah in what, like 2006? Seven. Oh, Gina's seven. holding okay. up, silently oh, okay. holding up the number seven with her fingers. Thank you, Gina. Um, uh, and it's a silent comic, and it's sort of heavily, you could read it as very literal or also sort of heavily um, metaphorical. And Mark once witnessed a heated argument between um, two librarians, one of whom was saying that it was a book that spoke most profoundly to like five-year-olds who are sort of beginning to navigate the world of friendship and um, sort of and social preferences. And the other one was saying, you can't possibly appreciate this book unless you've been through a really messy divorce. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> well, talk about a broad audience. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, for us, it's about sort of developing relationships with people who sort of have a point of view that really works for us. And um, even within this sort of like pretty strictly defined um, series, what we really want is for these to feel creator driven, to feel like they have a lot of voice, to feel sort of like they honor the vision of the person who's creating them. Uh, no, it got a Newbery um, honor and a Prince honor. Right. Fuck my life. I'm sorry. I'm really tired. It, it's, I get the Newbery and the Caldecott mixed up, which is very bad I because too, I work in children's so, publishing. Thank uh, you, Gina. It got a Caldecott honor and it got a Prince honor. And the Caldecott is the award that it, the Newbery, which it did not get, is generally given to middle grade fiction. I mean, not sort of exclusively, but that tends to be where it lands. And the... Caldecott, which is the honor that it did get, is generally, it, it is an award for art. So the Caldecott is specifically for art. Nowhere in the requirements for the Caldecott does it say that it has to be for a particular age range or a particular format. So technically, this one summer, which is a book um, for middle grade and teen readers that deals very frankly with sexuality and drug use and reproductive trauma, um, is totally eligible. And in fact, because it was eligible and because it was so good, they gave this book a um, Calicut <laughs> honor. I'm so <laughs> tired. Um, so and when you there say was a lot of there was a lot of uh, uh, anxiety about this because this is an award that is almost exclusively given to picture books, and right. uh, there are a yeah. lot of like. For example, school librarians ordering books for their kindergarten classroom um, who just automatically buy whatever book got, you know, the yeah. an honor that year. And so this one never ended up a few problems, in yeah. a lot of inappropriate places. So um, that might have factored into all of these bands, huh? Oh, well, I think a doubt. it certainly made a difference. I think yeah. that definitely has made a difference. Yeah. Um, Do you think the bands uh, matter in this day and age since we don't have like a centralized media? I mean, yes and no, right? So it's a little bit hard for me as somebody who lives in a big city and also works in publishing and has a sort of a highly literate um, social circle to judge. But I think that for, for kids who live in rural areas, 
um, and who maybe also don't have like a ton of income, right, who are really dependent on libraries. Um, I think for those kids, it does make a difference. I mean, the good news is most of these books aren't being banned outright. They're being reshelved. Um, and often the attempts, the challenges uh, aren't, to reshelve them aren't even successful. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to interject here. Somebody give this woman a microphone. This is Gina. Um, so recently it was Banned Books Week about two weeks ago. And um, Rico and Jillian, who are the author and illustrator and co-creators basically of this one summer, talked a whole lot about their feelings about this one summer being the number one most banned book of the year. Um, places like the New York Times and CNN and all these places. Um, and one of the things they really called out was that about a third of the top 10 list of the top 10 most banned books in the US were books that were banned and called out because they had queer themes. So something they're really concerned mm -hmm. about and that I do think matters across the country is this idea of queer erasure. You yeah. know, that communities are basically looking at books that have LGBTQ plus content in them and pulling them off the shelves because that's not a, an experience they want kids to see. And that's something I think has profound cultural resonance. And that does affect kids where they go into the library and they don't even realize that their lived experience that they're trying to negotiate and that they're trying to grow into is not reflected on the shelves because people have taken it away, not because it doesn't exist. Thank you. There's good news and there's bad news about publishing kids' comics in terms of like um, placing, like getting it through the gatekeepers and sort of placing it in the hands of kids ultimately. Um, the content thing is a huge consideration because there's stuff that you can describe in a book for a 12 year old that no, in a prose book, that no gatekeeper is gonna blink at, that if you depict that happening yeah. visually, people will be appalled. And it's interesting, I mean, it's sort of, it implies the incredible power of comics as a medium, right? That as a storytelling medium, that's something that you could put down in words and it would be sort of considered completely acceptable for, you know, tender, young minds, if you show it to them visually, is like deemed too horrible for them to see, too violent or too sexual. Um, violent? Never too violent. Well, no, I, th I think so, <laughs> okay, though, in okay. comics. Well, like, I'm thinking about, funny, I know, yeah. I know. I mean, there's obviously, in American culture, there's a huge discrepancy between how we police violence in content and how we police sexuality. So they can be daring in terms of addressing a broader age range with a different topic than maybe would be approached in prose where it's so categorized, but not daring in terms of portraying certain things that are sexual or violent or yeah. are there other things that can't be portrayed visually that people get freaked out about that you've encountered? Oh, that's an interesting question. I'll have to get back to you on that. I feel like probably yes, but nothing is leaping to mind. Um, I I think I remember something about like in Bone they were freaked out that they went to a tavern. Oh, there was like <laughs> booze. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I feel like I'm I'm about to test the waters of what people will deem appropriate or not appropriate for teens to read because I'm working on a graphic novel about when I was 17, and I'm really hoping that other 17-year-olds, you know, not that I am anymore, but, like, you get that. <laughs> sure. The other 17-year-olds will be able to, like, 
to to read it, but I'm not sure exactly how it's going to go because uh, all kinds of fucked up stuff happened. Um, so, you know, I'm just I'm just hoping like, eh, if I if I dealt with it at that age, then um, then that I mean, then I certainly feel like that justifies that like other teens should be reading about it just to like get a handle on their own lives but we'll see in the publishing market whether whether that pans out that way or whether it's like an adult book that people are maybe giving to teens like under the table or what but this is why um american comics readership is gonna keep going up because you know you 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 you're creating these kinds of stories. These stories are getting to readers, and and now when they would have never seen the light of day in another time in American publishing. That's why um, we're in a new golden age. We're in it right now, and we can watch it happen. And uh, comics are being transformed. That's a good ending. Everybody oh, yeah. happy? Yeah. No. All right. I'm cool with it. Right. Peace. Thank you very this was fun. much. Yeah. Everyone. This was fun. Yeah. yeah that was fun. That was Talking awesome. comics. What's oh, not man. the light? Yeah, yeah, get us started. Where else can we find more of y'all if you want to tell the, the, the crowd, the audience? Hey, where uh, can we find more of your work and, and you? You can find more of my work at newlevant.com. Um, and that has a lot of my comics online for free and updates about what I'm publishing. And my Twitter, H. New Levant, has more stuff about the anthologies that I self-publish. And if you want to keep up with what Lionforge is doing, which is becoming more and more what I'm doing since I just started being an associate editor yesterday, um, oh man! Then, congratulations! Thank you. That's awesome. Then uh, f- follow and look at all of Lionforge's different things because I'm, you know, excited to get more stories out into the world that way through my through through my publishing job as well as what I'm making myself. Uh, and you can find me at publishersweekly.com/slash/comics, um, where you'll find all of our uh, coverage uh, collected. Uh, you can also find me every week on More to Come, the PW weekly uh, podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing with my two co-hosts, Heidi McDonald and uh, Kate Fitzsimmons. Hanging uh, out. You can find um, First Second on every social media platform that exists um, and Callista Brill on less of them, fewer of them. Um, uh, I also write picture books and comics in my spare time and have just uh, created a website for that. So if you look for me, you can find that as well. And I have a new picture book coming out this spring about a cat. Ooh, exciting. Okay. All right. That's pretty exciting. Um, and um, I guess you can find my books, my graphic novels through for a second, um, mostly, because uh, I'm terrible at social media. But I do have a website. It's my name.com, Sarah Varon. And sometimes I post on Instagram. Yeah, and um, I'm Daryl Io, and I'm at Twitter, Tumblr, Daryl Io, and oh yeah, I also do comics at littlegardencomics.com. Daryl's comics are super rad. They're very cool, yeah. very cool. Yay! Yay. Woo. Awesome, this is awesome. Thanks so much. And the Yankees won, yeah, baby! <laughs>